I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. I didn't know if I was going to be able to do something again. I was nervous. I was a one-hit wonder. You know, how do I top building an organization to help the homeless with the impetus through running. Like the story was just so compelling. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, Solid Core founder and part of the VMG family, Ann Mellum, is gonna tell us all about how her own health journey launched a fitness revolution that's touched countless lives. Solid Core describes itself as Pilates redefined with a full body workout that utilizes slow and controlled movements. Now one of the biggest boutique fitness brands in all of the US. And Anne's belief in Solid Core's success got her through some tough scaling times. But as you'll hear in this interview, you don't want to bet against Anne. Solid Core obviously had a rough time through the pandemic, but I'll tell you there wasn't one day where I thought we're not going to make it. Find out how Solid Core's unique approach to the Pilates method gained such a cult following, why Anne thinks the best founders need to learn how to get out of their own way, and what's ahead in 2022 for her thriving business. Unfinished Biz starts now. So Robin, I'm I'm winded right now and I didn't even do a solid core workout yet. I think it's like PTSD from how hard these classes are. I mean, when I first tried this class, A, I'm just embarrassed because everybody else makes it so easy looking and I'm just sitting there like dying. And then, you know, the next day, the next day, I think is the real, you know, that's when like the tidal wave hits where, you know, I'm sore in places I didn't even know existed on my body. Sadly, I still remember your first class because you wouldn't stop talking about it. So yes, I, I can attest that at least it took a lot out of you. There's no doubt about it. And I feel like after this interview, I have way more context because, you know, Anne is, she is the ultimate athlete. Honestly, you can tell too, because she takes that mentality of just being an incredible athlete to business. And she was able to apply that both in the nonprofit and for-profit world. And I think the other thing that totally jumps out at you too is this idea of just always being confident and being sort of such a believer in yourself. I think that's a big part of kind of what she talks about and what's made her successful. I mean, and despite, but despite that confidence that Anne has, I mean, it doesn't make it easier. And on this interview, we're going to hear all about the challenges and hurdles that she had to overcome to make Solid Core the huge success that it is today. Oh, my entrepreneurial journey began when I was 26. I was in a pretty lonely time in my life, like a lot of people trying to figure out what the heck they're supposed to do. And uh, I had spent two years going through that process of sorting sorting something out. I was pretty lonely and I always had felt for a long time that I was supposed to do something big. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to find it. I feel like I was looking under every proverbial rock that I could and uh, it was really frustrating. I was a big runner at the time. So I was running every day and I was living in Philadelphia and I lived by this homeless shelter that I had ran by so many times before. And I uh, never really thought twice about the people that I saw outside the shelter. And in May of 2007, they, a few guys waved at me and, and I waved back. And the next day they 
waved again. And pretty soon there was a, I don't know, 30 second rapport happening each morning when I would run by these guys. And then this idea happened that why am I just running by them and leaving them there? Why don't I share this powerful gift of running and start a running club for this homeless shelter? So that was the first origination of an idea that I thought I could put into action. How did you even start that? Did you start just asking person by person? Like, how do you start a running club? Did you put up signage? Like, what was the first step to that? I emailed uh, the director. I looked up the shelter online and I found the executive director and I emailed him and I told him who I was. And I said, I've been walking and running by your shelter for the last two years. I, I'd like to start a running club. Uh, is that possible? And he never, he never emailed me back. So I emailed him again. I'm very good at badgering people. Maybe you know that, Wayne. Uh, <laughs> and so I was just very persistent. I just there was something about this idea. Uh, you may or may not know this, Wayne, but my dad, my dad's an addict. He, um, he went through drug and alcohol recovery when I was really young, and then gambling when I was a teenager. And that's a big reason why I turned to running. So when I started to connect with these guys, there there was something really personal for me there. I saw a lot of my dad in these in these guys hanging outside the shelter and felt so compelled to to help them through this sport that helped me get through my dad's addictions. And um, so I called this this guy, and he finally emailed me back in a less direct way told me that, you know, these guys aren't going to be interested in running. They're homeless, right? They have other problems, bigger things going on. And, and, uh, I just wouldn't take no for an answer. I just knew how powerful running was for me in my life. And I knew that if I could engage with them and show them this sport, that their mental, emotional, physical well-being, their sense of self, their identity, you know, would start to turn positive. So I, I convinced him to meet with me and, um, he promised me he would ask, told me not to get my hopes up. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I got an email that nine guys wanted to join the, the running club. I had recently taken a job at Comcast, this big uh, media conglomerate for those who might or may not know who they are. And it was my first time in the corporate world. I went to grad school and I was like, oh, like this, this is, this is why I did all the schooling, right? To get this big fancy job. And I took this job. And then I, once I had this idea for back on my feet, which was the name of the running club, I asked for six weeks so I could get it up and running, uh, pun intended, I guess. And during those six weeks, um, I was convinced this is what I was supposed to do with my life. I saw this vision that this was not a running club for the homeless, that this was a catalyst and an impetus for people who are living in a place in their life and for these guys, it happened to be a shelter that if I could change the association that they had with themselves, that maybe I could help them change the direction of their life. That if I could get to see them as somebody who wasn't homeless, but somebody who was an athlete, responsible, disciplined team player could accomplish goals that I, we could get them in the right mindset to them, get them employed and then, and then get them housing. And so that was the vision, as most entrepreneurs do, especially a young one. I, I was telling everybody I possibly knew about my idea and like how I wanted to turn this into a fully fledged nonprofit programming, get funding. And everybody thought I was nuts. Random question, but as you kind of you're getting to know these guys, I don't know if they're runners to begin with. Like, how did you did you have to like get them to run short distances first? Was this like an everyday thing? Like, how did that actually all come, come about? Yes. Some of us ran, some of us crawled. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so we had the running club. We, the first time I met these guys, uh, I, I met them in person. 
they didn't know there was some young white blonde girl from North Dakota that was going to be leading the running club. And I made them sign a piece of paper the night I met them. That was a dedication contract that said, if you want to be a part of the running club, you've got to show up three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 6 a.m. You got to be on time. And if you miss and if you miss more than whatever days I said, like you're kicked off the team. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, it was like serious. And, and here I was some stranger looking at you know, nine of them were black. One of them was, was white, obviously tough backgrounds. And I was looking at them and expecting pure excellence. And you could tell that no one had looked at them like that in a really long time, if ever in their life. And you could just feel the excitement, the potential that they felt of themselves, that they could do this. And so we started off running a mile. That was our first day. And we made a pact that, uh, no one ran alone. So if you finished first, you had to go back. Uh, Joe, who was the oldest guy in the first group, you know, was really struggling. He wasn't a runner. He was overweight, just a little bit older. So there were some guys who finished in seven minutes and then some had to go get back and, you know, get and get Joe. And that was our first experience together. And um, we just created these traditions. Like one of the guys, it was a religious uh, shelter. So before we ran, one of the guys says, can we pray? And I said, sure. And he said the serenity prayer. And it's a beautiful prayer. For those who don't know, you can look it up or I can, I can share it. But that became something we did every day before we ran. And even today, uh, you know, 15 years later that the organization is still going around 14 cities in, in, the, in the States, they still say wow. the serenity prayer every Monday, Wednesday, Friday before, before they run. You know, now you're saying there's 14 cities that, that do it today. Yeah. How did, how did it scale from that first nine, nine folks that you had? Uh, well, Wayne, that's just what I do. Yeah. Lucky, you know, lucky for you, you're invested in my for-profit company. So, um, <laughs> so with, with, with back on my feet, so first off the vision and no one told me this was going to work. Everybody thought it was admirable. And I was being a little Pollyanna and these guys are going to quit and the novelty is going to run off. And what happens when it gets cold and everything else. And so for entrepreneurs who are listening or want to be, there was, there was a couple of questions that I had to ask myself in the beginning. One was what if everybody's right and this thing isn't going to work and everybody quits, right? Like that's truly the worst case scenario. And it's not nuclear. I, I, I don't get game over. I don't live in a video game. It's not like my life ends, you know, I'm going to have to pivot and figure something out. And a lot of what entrepreneurs do are people who are thinking about taking the risk. They convince themselves that it is a nuclear worst case scenario. Oh my God, I'm going to do this. And then this is going to happen. I'm going to lose all my money. And then I'm going to be homeless. And I'm, you know, it just, it's just not usually the reality. So because the worst case scenario wasn't so bad, it made the leap easier. And I called Comcast and I was like, I'm sorry. I really appreciate you giving me this job. I can't make it. I gotta, I gotta see if I can build this thing and make it work. So I, I surrounded myself with some really smart people from the beginning who had skill sets that I didn't have. And we started to put this vision into to practice. We started to build programming, a little bit of trial and error, knowing that we're not going to get it right every time. This isn't going to work for everybody, but we have to at least start somewhere to realize what's working and what's not working. So it was three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, miles were tracked, um, attendance was tracked. We started to build on financial literacy and everything else. And then because we started to scale in Philly, which is where we started, we said, okay, we have one team, right? One shelter. Let's add another, right? Let's yep. take the exact same format, which is we had a team leader, volunteers, everything else and do the same thing. So because we were able to replicate over and over again in the city, then it was like, 
well, why can't we do this in another city and just build another chapter? Did you go straight to another city or another homeless shelter in Philly? Well, in Philly, Philly first. So we had five or six teams in Philly that all ran independently. Okay. So the way the model worked is that volunteers would sign up and want to participate in the program and come and run with the members. And they would get assigned a team throughout Philly. So they would be assigned to go to that homeless shelter at, at 6 a.m. in the morning and, and meet the guys there and run their miles with them so that the residents living in the shelters, all they had to do was get up, get changed, get dressed and come out and ready for their run. And there'd be a team of positive volunteers ready to run with them. So the model just felt replicable from that, from that notion. We were all privately funded. And I tapped into my networks in Philadelphia when we said, okay, let's expand to Baltimore. Let's try that city. It's close enough to Philly that, you know, it's easy to get to, it's an hour and a half drive, but far enough where we have to have like separate programming, separate people, and let's see if we can make this work. So the corporate funding that we had, I tapped into all those contacts and then said, I need contacts for Baltimore. I need any, I need you to introduce me to three people. Yep. And we had an opening day. And one of the things too, Wayne, I remember doing was I didn't go to Baltimore and say, Hey, we're thinking about starting this program here. If we can get enough funding, then we'll, then we'll think about doing it because what you, what you learn quickly is nobody wants to jump on a ship that they're not sure is going to sail. So yep. you know, and I learned that from my dad really early of teaching me to walk in like I own the place. And so I went to Baltimore and was like, this is when we're opening. This is going to be the day that we open. And the team all got on board and we had to raise enough money, get the program set up, get enough Love volunteers it. ready. And like, that was the opening date. And we did that. Um, we opened 14 at 12 cities in about four and a half years, simply with that model of getting people so excited and convinced them that they were going to miss out on this incredible opportunity to get behind this innovative organization that's approaching um, solving homelessness differently. Help us sort of think about the transition of, so you, you scaled this organization. At what point did you take a step back? How did Solid Core sort of, sure. you know, kind of bridge us between that first entrepreneurial uh, endeavor to yep. Solid Core? How did you how, how did you transition between between? Um, messily. <laughs> so <laughs> so so six six and a half years in or six years in that entrepreneurial knock started happening in my mind again, that it was time to do something else, right? This back on my feet was pretty stable. We were about a six and a half million dollar organization annually, all privately funded, great board, tons of fortune 100 companies sitting on the board, funding us and everything else. And so it felt really stable. And I, I felt like my talents and skill sets had done what they needed to do. And it became much more about running the organization. Yeah. Um, which is where I don't get my energy and I'm not the best person to do that. So I started to think maybe it's time for me to do something else. And when you, when you hear that, my first reaction was how dare you? Like I, my life is so purposeful. I get to help people have a better life. Um, this is yep. so great and be grateful, uh, but it, it didn't go away. And so I had to start to listen. And I frankly, uh, Wayne was really nervous because my whole identity was wrapped up and back on my feet. I didn't know if I was going to be able to do something again. I was nervous. I was a one hit wonder. And then lastly, you know, how do I top building an organization to help the homeless with the impetus through running? Like the story was just so compelling and I felt so special. Um, if I'm being honest, there was probably some ego involved. And so I was really nervous to try something else and fail and how that would make me look. But it, the, the feelings just didn't go away. And so I started to just pay attention to what was around. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to do something. So I was in LA for back on my feet. 
when I walked by this, this uh, Pilates place that had fancy, you know, wallpaper and like interesting machines. And I'm like, Oh, that looks so LA. And I consider myself an athlete. Uh, I've done 11 marathons. I've, I've done tons of triathlons. Like I, I can hang. And so I was like, Oh, I'll do this fun, like LA workout. How, how cute. And I completely got annihilated. It was so hard. I didn't know you could work out that way. Moving your body in a slow and controlled manner with light weights. I was sore in all the places that I think a lot of women start to target. And I just felt uh, reinvigorated about movement in my body. So I found another Pilates place in New York where I was living at the time. I started going and my body started to change and I got stronger and I felt good. And then I started to do the math on the business model. And I was like, this is an incredible business, but I don't think anybody's doing it really well. There's no community. There's, there's no, there's no sense of excitement. It just kind of felt stale. So that's when I was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. I want other people to feel as good as I do. And I want to build an environment similar to back on my feet where I can make people feel through a positive community that they're, that they're capable, that they're strong and, and see their potential. So that was a switch for me of like, this is what I'm doing. Was it difficult to actually make that transition between more of sort of that nonprofit world and then now going into more of a a for-profit mentality? I'm just kind of curious if that you needed to actually kind of wear a different hat in order to make that happen. Good question, but but not for me and only because I treated back on my feet like a business. And that's frankly why a lot of people that I think ended up working there underneath the the maybe um, disciplined leadership that I applied to it didn't, didn't work out in the right way. Like back in my feet, we were working 80 hours a week. Like it was, we were on a mission to help make people's lives better. And I took that seriously. And it's, this was not sort of a balanced nine to five gig. Like everybody who worked at back in my feet was out there running at 6am. Then we went yeah. to the office. It was nonstop. So the mentality was the same for me. And also all the money that I raised at back on my feet, there was always, how do I take this hundred grand donation and turn it into two? You know, so it was, it was not, I didn't really view it as charity. I viewed it as just a donation. And it's my job to take that donation, turn it into something and make as much impact as I can. So it didn't take that much to transition, but I'll tell you when I told people that I'm leaving back on my feet to go open a high, a high end fitness boutique Jim, everybody was like, what? Like, aren't you supposed to be going to Africa to save all the children? Their, their association of me didn't fit with like going into the for-profit world, trying to make money, but that's everybody else's problem. Well, tell us about that first location. Like, you know, obviously you, you fell in love with Pilates as you described, but like, how did you think about that first location in terms of how you would differentiate and how you'd bring something new to the, to the category? Yeah. So I decided to open my first studio in Washington, DC. I had some familiarity with DC. I went to grad school there. I had opened back on my feet there, had a lot of networks and it was, it was an affluent city and also a very active city. So I felt like, and, and we, this was just the cusp of boutique fitness. So it felt like the timing was right to, to do something like this there. There just wasn't a lot of boutique fitness in DC. And so I didn't know what I didn't know, obviously, but I knew enough to know what I didn't know. So I had to hire a broker to, to show me spaces, you yep. know, to help me understand looking at a few different spaces and, and settled in Adams Morgan, Washington, DC. And it's very residential it turned out to be a great location for us. But I, I tell you, even like the, the leasing right here, I'm, I saved up, I saved up about $180,000 through my time at back on my feet speaking and everything else. And I put it 
all on the table. Yeah. Uh, I remember my first lease and they're like, wanted, they wanted four months security deposit from me because I'd never ran a business before and they right. viewed this as risky. So I simply had to give them, you know, almost $40,000 just to sit there and do nothing. Uh, that was painful. That's why I never pay security deposits anymore. But uh, <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, so so I, I built this space, picked it, found a contractor. One of the things I knew nothing about, and either did the the, the landlord, was sound attenuation. So we screwed that up uh, immensely. I got evicted from my first location uh, about fourteen months after I opened. I had the, the music place, was too loud. It was too loud, and and it was too loud. I went upstairs and listened in the people's apartments, and it was loud, and you know. I didn't know whose fault it was. The landlord didn't require it. They didn't know. And so the police showed up every, pretty much every morning at 5 a.m. while I'm like on the microphone coaching classes and they're like, turn it down. And I'm like, right after this, I mean, it was a nightmare. Speaking of music and Pilates, when you were engaging in other people's Pilates studios, were they playing loud music or was this something that you wanted to bring to Pilates? They were not playing. It was softer. Uh, there, there was a gentle ginger gingerliness about the way that people were instructing. And I'm an intense person. I'm a competitive person. And then, like I said, I'm athletic. So I wanted to up the ante with the workout and the music and the vibe. And I was really particular when we opened the first location to make sure it didn't have so much of a feminine vibe uh because i want i didn't want people to think of that it was sort of like oh boutique fitness that's like what people do that really don't work out so the floors were concrete the pallet wood walls like it was a really raw space and the music was part of that of like you're coming in here to work and then the second location we added the light dimmers and blue lights and it was like when the when the when the class started the lights went down and the music went even louder so it became yeah, just like this intense version of a workout that people didn't expect to be intense. The way that the brand actually kind of manifested itself, like was that, did you work with folks on that? Or was that just, you knew in your gut what you wanted it to feel like, to look like, to sound like? Yeah, I'm I'm not good at a lot of things, but I'm good at that. <laughs> uh, so so the, the branding and stuff, um, I love that. I love all of that. Like so, like back of my feet, that name, the solid core name. I, I love cleverness and branding and marketing, and I love storytelling. So I definitely had an architect who took my vision and and you know introduced elements and and uh, suggestions who was great to work with at the time. But yeah, it was it was it needs to be this masculine balance with femininity, and a lot of that stuff still remain the same today, right? Solid core with the brackets. The brackets represent community. They represent abs, like your obliques tightness, togetherness. So all of those things were, were purposeful, but I definitely have people working with me that helped the vision come to life. And then, you know, just like, just like you did on back on your feet, you know, how did you scale it? So, you know, you had this one location, at what point did you feel like it was ready for a second location? And then, you know, what were some of the challenges when you, when you expanded? So the first location opened November, 2013, and the second location opened in February. So very Ooh, that's quick. Fast. Look at you. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. Fast. It was fast. And, and then the third was May and the fourth was September. And thank goodness, Wayne, because when that first location, we had to close it like 14 months after we opened. But fortunately, you know, we had five other locations at the point. So yeah. if I would have had to close with just having one, that would have been really hard to keep people engaged through by trying to find another location in Adams Morgan, which we eventually did eight months after that one closed. But I mean, listen, I, I love to create, I love to build and I love to scale. So 
I feel like sometimes when people ask me, you know, when I'm doing interviews, oh my gosh, Anne, did you, did you ever imagine SolidCore would become this big? And they want me to like humbly say like, no, I had no idea. And I'm like, yes, uh, that was, al- <laughs> that was always the plan. You know, I, I didn't want to have something, I had no interest in having a mom and pop, you know, location and just doing one. I wanted to test my hand at really building something that could scale and that also could hopefully have the same path as back of my feet, which that I was building something that would work without me and that I can infuse it in the beginning and make sure I'm bringing in the right people uh, and making the right decisions to put the right foundation and structure in place that, you know, I can be sitting here in, in California and, you know, 80 studios across the country are operating today. There's people coaching. I'm not needed. Um, that's really, really important for any entrepreneur because if your business doesn't work without you, I really don't think there's a lot to be impressed by and you're, you're making it too much about you. You need to really focus on the mission you're trying to build and I wanted to help a lot of people. And I knew if I, if I centered it around me, that the potential for the company was going to be very limited. And how did you think about building team, you know, from the beginning? Because you went from, like you said, you went from like one studio to five studios in less than 12 months. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you immediately bring on other team members? And then how did you think about team members from a standpoint of, of trainers versus almost like corporate team members to help you scale so quickly? Yeah. So right in the beginning, right. The coaches were the most important because they were the ones that they they made the, and they're still, they still are. We have 700 and some coaches and they are what make this company obviously work and operate and they're on the front lines and it's how people fall in love with us is through their coaches. So the first five people that I hired um, to coach in Adams Morgan were I looked at personality. We, we are different personalities, frankly, really diverse group, both um, gender, age, ethnicity, and just again, personality wise. And so that was the first part and, and that worked well. So obviously the second one was, I got to do that again. And what has worked well for us is finding our coaches out of our client base. You see the certain clients in the studio who people gravitate to, who people respond to. And most people that work at SolidCore in that coach setting they have never worked in fitness before. We don't need that. We will train you. We care about how you treat people. We care about your love for this company, for other people, for fitness. So um, we tap into that a lot and that's what kept our community strong. So I, I believe in success in companies I have the same view on that as I do with politics, which is the more localized, the better. So I I knew that I needed to, when I opened two and three, I needed a leader for those studios. I needed to have somebody in that space consistently since I was no longer going to be able to be in all three or four places at the same time. I needed somebody that the clients would fall in love with. So I put a team lead is what I called it back then, um, in those spaces that would be responsible for coaching the, the most number of classes. It was really important that the person overseeing the studio and keeping it clean and, and operating it was also coaching because without that, there would not be the connectedness to the clients. And that's remained the same you know, today. And then obviously as five studios came about, I needed somebody, a jack of all trades. I needed somebody who was good at operations and finance and payroll and could yep. handle the logistical day-to-day that I I could do, but like, again, it's painful for me to do and also a disservice to the company. You want me building 
finding new studios, you know, doing the things that are going to help scale it. So I, I mean, through back on my feet, I just learned what I'm good at and I learned what I'm not good at and, and how to bring those people in the mix and let them do their job. And, and how did you fund all that? I mean, you mentioned it was 180 grand, you put $40,000 on a deposit. How did you open five studios in a year? Even if they're cash flowing, it, that's still a lot of upfront costs to, to get, to get going. Yeah, it was, but I, I just read every single prop, every single dollar of profit that the studios had, I just continued to reinvest and yep. I'm okay, but I'm, I'm just, I, if, if I had to bet on anybody, I would bet on myself. I know I will figure it out. And so I, I, I started just to negotiate, right? I started to not do security deposits saying that I want to grow and build this company. If you take security deposits from me and think about that, Wayne, if we have 80 studios and everybody asks for 30 grand or something, right? That's like $2.4 million that would just be yeah. tied up with capital. I wouldn't do it. And also a lot of the contract work that would get done, I would ask for extensions on paying. So if I had to spend 200 and some thousand dollars in getting the studio build out, sometimes more, you know, I would build a relationship with the contractor and ask for a little flexibility to, to pay, you know, maybe 45 days after the studio opened a good chunk of it so that I could get revenue uh, and cash flow coming from that studio to, to pay that bill. So I was always kind of paying it forward. And, um, and then I started to understand tenant improvement dollars and I started to negotiate like my life depended on it. <laughs> I would rather pay for that stage in the company because I wasn't well capitalized. Yeah. I would rather have paid more in rent on year five of my lease term, um, than, you know, Up cover. Front. Yeah. I didn't have the capital yeah. and I didn't, I wasn't ready to raise money. I wanted to get, you know, at least double digit studios so that I could really show that I know what I'm doing. Um, and not have to to give up equity. But I also know that's not a normal entrepreneur journey, right? Like I was really fortunate. I got really lucky with the timing of, of boutique fitness in DC uh, before. Now there's like, you can't, you know, walk a couple of blocks without seeing a couple of boutique fitness studios. Yeah. So yeah, I just was like, this is something I need to get scale tomorrow. I need to get speed to market. This is, this concept is great. The workout is great. I'm getting affirmation. I'm continuing to see, you know, more people say the same things that I was saying. Um, so I just felt really confident in the, in the product. You know, just give us a quick snapshot on where solid core stands today. Yeah. So I recently, um, I guess last year now in April promoted my, uh, president and COO Brian to CEO, which is amazing. He's killing it. And I'm so proud of him. And I'm sitting in the exec chair role now and, and my founder role for the same reasons I mentioned about back on my feet. He is just better equipped at handling the, the structure, the rules, everything that needs to be in place and be protected at this stage. Um, and I'm able to continue to tap into the creative, innovative, strategic, um, out-of-the-box thinking and help guide the team in the appropriate way and also still coaching in the studios. So SolidCore obviously had a rough time through the pandemic, but I'll tell you there wasn't one day where I thought we're not going to make it. I just do not allow myself to think that way. Um, and we pivoted and pivoted again and made tough calls and, you know, protected our cash, protected the cash that we had. Um, and then, of course, took an investment from, from BMG uh, in February of last year, so almost a year ago. We got uh, 11 studios open in 2021. We are scheduled to do 19 in 2022. And then we'll just continue our, our growth for the next few years. We're opening in Los Angeles and a lot of West Coast cities um, this year, which is exciting, too. Right after the break, we'll be back with our featured guest, Solid Core founder and part of the VMG family, Ann Malum. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. 
Find us wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on more than 50 past episodes at unfinishedbiz.com. Follow us on our yeah, 50? <laughs> Follow us on our Unfinished Biz LinkedIn page for news and updates. And if you love the show, we love iTunes reviews. But now let's get back to our conversation with Ann Malum, founder of SolidCore. Well, I think we've actually heard a couple of instances of this already because I think, you know, at every turn when there's an opportunity to bet on yourself, you have, and it's served you incredibly well. But if there's one moment where you can think of where it's more of a, you really put everything on the line, you bet the company on it. What what was that one moment in your mind? SolidCore was part of a license agreement in the beginning. And I was licensing the, the machines and the machines kept breaking. And I, I knew the only way for me to build the company I wanted to do was going to have to make my own machines and separate from this license agreement. And uh, I, I frankly knew I was going to get sued. I'm like, there's no way that this person's going to let me not do this without a battle. But I, I, took, I took the risk and I uh, yep. took some money from a partner and I told him I'm probably going to go through a lawsuit. I'm going to use this money to make the machines. I feel very confident. And so, so that's what happened. And we, you know, I'd never had built uh, anything before, but um, got an engineer and we now um, have the proprietary rights to our own uh, machine that we use at SolidCore. It's amazing. A lot of highs that you've gone through also a couple of lows, but is there to start out, is there a particular high point in your entrepreneurial journey that, that really stands out? Uh, yes, there, there are so many. And as, um, people say, it's the small things that really build the success. Um, but the, the high points are, you know, probably when we took this investment, um, Wayne, that you, you know, that I took a good chunk of that and gave it to, um, our employees who were so patient with us over the course of, uh, the pandemic and, working for nothing, pay cuts, layoffs. It was a roller coaster. It was a, it was a real high for me to be able to reward them with some uh, unexpected compensation for the work that they had done and help us to get to that point. So that was very satisfying for me. Yeah, I think it's extremely admirable what you did, you know, in terms of, you know, I think you, you said it well at the beginning, you know, they're, they're on the front lines. The, yeah. the coaches the coaches help make the brand and, and what you did to, to take care of them you know, through a tough time. Again, it, it, I think it speaks to your, your character. I mean, even just again, what you, how, how you started your entrepreneurial journey speaks to your character in terms of, of the lives that you've changed um, through your nonprofit that you started. So again, kudos to you. I mean, every entrepreneurial journey has its, its up and downs. Is there one low point where even an optimistic, you know, a person like yourself still had that kind of low moment of like, oh gosh, this is, this is, this is really rough and this, you know, um, yeah, really stands out. Oh my God. Yes. There's definitely a few of those. And, and, uh, that's the beautiful thing about an entrepreneur though. You, you become so resilient and you, you have to go through that. People just want to shy away from the tough times, but I think it was probably, um, last year when, uh, this, this, there was an article that came out about me that was really difficult to read. A lot of people taking shots at me, uh, that I felt was not representative of who, of who I was. And the fact that the, you know, that exists out in the world was, was really challenging. Um, so I had to, I had to do some real work there and, you know, re really focus on, I'm, I'm by no means a perfect person at all, but focus on the things that I do well and knowing that not everybody's going to 
like me, respond well to me. Um, but it, it, it made me, it made me double down on the kind of person that, that I am and just kind of block out the noise, but it doesn't mean it wasn't painful. No. And that's, and I, I do think it's also very, it's a lonely role to be in. And I, I think it's basically impossible to actually kind of come away from being in that role unscathed. And it's one of those things where I think so many of our founders, leaders have, they've, they've at some point in time had to struggle with something of that nature. So mm-hmm. completely understandable. At this point though, you know, lots of ups and downs, really feeling like things are on an incredible foundation that's been built at this point, but what's keeping you up at night? There's not a lot keeping me up at night to be, to be honest. And I think that's because uh, it's not that there's not stress, but I'm not somebody who lets stress manifest. And so if there were something keeping me up at night, I would have solved it. Uh, I would have dealt with it. I would have had the conversation. I don't like things to fester. I don't like things to to float uh, out there. So there, there's nothing that way. I'm not afraid of conflict or difficult conversations um, or the hard work. So I'm sleeping well. <laughs> Robin, I think the Back on My Feet organization that Ann started is truly amazing. I mean, you know, For to sure. start a nonprofit with nine individuals who just had a rough go in their life and to reinvigorate their lives through fitness, it's absolutely amazing and inspiring. And then from a business standpoint, to be able to scale that nationally, I mean, only Anne could do that. I mean, to have that level of energy and actually then sort of put that into a whole different endeavor, like this idea of, I get this mental image of Anne leading a Pilates class at 5 a.m., pumping incredible music and having the, the cops descend. That that can't happen with lots of people, but I can actually see it happening with her. Can you imagine and, like a Pilates Like It's like the most contrarian Pilates thing ever. And, you know, again, like going against type, right? This idea of a founder sometimes having the foresight to understand that you know, they may not be necessarily the right person at a certain stage to be sort of running running the entire show, bringing on a partner and CEO. I think that also, you know, that that shows a lot about what Anne's like as a person and as well as just a, a founder and business operator. But in everything she does, you know, her her level of tenacity and spirit is really resonates. I mean, even when in bringing on a a CEO to, to drive the day to day, that aggressiveness still remains. I mean, Solid Core plans to launch 19 new locations this year, and you know, as of the as of the recording of this podcast, we're still in COVID. I mean, you know, significant parts of the the country still don't even have all of their gyms fully open, but. They're, they're launching 19 locations nevertheless. And I think that's that spirit of, of Anne. And she's a born athlete. Everything that we're talking about on this podcast, it's about the spirit of, of her super athleticism. And what we're going to hear next is it's not, it's not going to change in her next one. And I wouldn't bet on that. I wouldn't bet against her here either. I am obsessed uh, with beach volleyball. I went to a camp, an adult camp back in May when I turned over the reins to Brian because it's a sport that I've always loved and I've never really learned how to do it right. Um, So I went there and I was like, I love this. I'm horrible. I got to get better. And so I've been spending a lot of time in California specifically to work on my volleyball game. And then I went back to a camp 
uh, actually the beginning of this year and uh, found myself in the championship game of, of the women. And it was awesome. It was just like another thing of when you put in the work and the time and the energy into something that you care about, you get to see the fruits of your labor. So uh, I, I love that I can walk up to any court out there now and feel like I can, I can hang and I can play and really proud of the progress that I've made on, uh, on my volleyball skills. So, so how, how did, how did you choose beach volleyball? Did you grow up playing volleyball? Like how did you? Definitely not. I mean, I grew up in North Dakota, so there was no beach volleyball there. And I was a tomboy. So I thought volleyball in high school and in middle school was like the sport that the unathletic girls played. Um, so I stayed far away from it because I had higher expectations of myself. And then, and then I quickly learned this sport is very technical, very challenging, very athletic. I mean, especially when you're playing beach volleyball, like doubles, which is what the sport is. I, I don't know. I just kind of got gravitated. I played a little bit of fours in DC and it was such yeah. a social sort of communal thing that I um, was enjoying doing. So that's, that's how it happened, but I'll, I'll play later today. And uh, it's part of my probably four or five days a week when I'm in California repertoire. So. That's very cool. And what's, what's the ultimate goal? Are you going to go to the Olympics or? Oh my gosh. No, no. I think the ultimate goal is to feel like I can hold my own on, on most courts. And I can play with most women who are not, you know, professional. I think that would feel really good. But I tell you what, as adults, when you ask somebody, Oh, do you want to go snowboarding? And someone's never snowboarded. The default reaction is, well, I don't know how, so therefore I can't go. And I hate that. Like I, I love to learn and I love to push myself. So it's been so satisfying to not know how to play this sport very well. And in a matter of seven months feel like, I can, I can play really well. There's something that, that I think releases dopamine when you are learning and then growing and advancing. It doesn't just have to be in our professional lives, which I think as adults, we usually default to. There's all kinds of things we can be learning, whether it's another language or reading or sport, uh, you know, emotional capacity and relationships. And I am, I am my happiest when I feel like I am progressing. You ready for our signature rapid fire game, Ann? Yeah, I'm ready. All Let's right, here we go. We'll kick off with what's your favorite utensil? Uh, fork. <laughs> what's the last thing you bought? Last thing I bought was a new pair of Nike shoes. What's one thing you always have room for at the end of a meal? Uh, a glass of tequila. <laughs> <laughs> nice. What's your go-to movie theater snack? Popcorn, extra butter. <laughs> the least used appliance. My oven. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is going to be an interesting one. What's your signature dish, if you have one? Uh, eggs and toast. <laughs> okay. If you could be endorsed by one brand other than your own, what would it be? Ooh, good one. Um, I mean, for my volleyball, I'll, I'll say Oakley. <laughs> okay. One item that's always stocked in your pantry? Uh, peanut butter. Something that you always buy at the store, but you end up never using. Cooking oil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is hard. What would be the title of your memoir? I have it, actually. Ooh. It's going to be called Animal Instincts. I like Ooh. it. Yes. Yeah. I like, a, I like a pun. You know, if it's clever, I'm, I'm usually on board. What did you want to be when you grew up? A politician. <laughs> What's one thing you're grateful for today? My health. 
best piece of advice you've ever received? Walking like you own the place. That was amazing. I love that you have you have a you had an answer for the memoir. I that's, know that's that's that's, that's good stuff. So last question: what what uh, what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? My advice is you can't force it. You know, a lot. I, I feel the same about volunteering, where people are like I just want to start a business, and it it doesn't work that way. I think there has to be a deeper, more compelling reason for you to dedicate the amount of time and energy and headspace into building something like it, it can't be about the money it can't be just the fact that you want to be an entrepreneur and work for yourself there has to be something deep and profound driving you to put in that level of, of dedication into what lies ahead otherwise I mean that's why most businesses fail right like it gets too hard and there's not enough reward and so if it's not representative of, of who you are it's just it's just not going to work so so don't force it well wise words you definitely walked the walk in that regard and thanks again for joining us on unfinished biz thank you that was awesome thanks for having me these are the opinions of robin and wayne and our guest entrepreneur and are not necessarily the opinions and thoughts of vmg partners and now a word from our lawyers this is not an offer to buy or sell. Entrepreneurs interviewed on this podcast may not be associated with VMG businesses and discussions of their companies should not be viewed as an endorsement by VMG.